everybody for wishing me a happy birthday. I appreciate that so much. I, I was listening to your children's sermon, Ben. I kept thinking, now, what song is Robin going to play that ties into taxes and, you know, Caesar? And I just, so I was very surprised. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, today is a great uh, birthday already because I've been able to baptize two young men into the fellowship of our church and as a profession of their faith. And now we're going to be able to help a family to dedicate their firstborn. And so the Allens are going to come up, Blake and Maggie, and they've got Andrew Graham Allen with them. Say hello, Graham. Y- y- y'all say hello, Graham. He's not saying hello to you. That would be amazing. Uh, we are so thankful to have them here. And, and another family connection because Maggie is also related to Tiffany. So we just got all kinds of family connections going on here. And what a great day for them to be able to celebrate all of this together with these young people. You know, uh, Blake and Maggie, uh, you are such a blessing to our church. We love you all. And everybody's been so excited to see this happy baby. He's always smiling. He's always happy. And, and we are so thankful for you and your families and what you've come to do today. Children truly are a gift from God. And they are a blessing. And we come today to give God thanks for the gift of Graham, but we also come to commit ourselves to God's plan. God has a plan for how Christian parents should raise their children to be able to do what we saw this morning and to be able to grow and to to love the Lord and to serve the Lord faithfully as Graham's parents do. And that's something that God talks about in His Word. Uh, I'll, I'll refer to this as sort of the Great Commission for Parents. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and now when... When Moses was speaking these words, when God was speaking through Moses to to the people, they were about to enter into a land that was going to be hostile to them, a land full of people that did not worship and serve their God, and much as the world today that Graham is having to grow up in. And so I think these words are especially poignant for us today. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today to Blake and to Maggie, are to be upon your hearts. Only then can you impress them on your children. And how do you do that? He says, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates. In other words, surround your children with the Word of God. And I know you've already begun to do that with Graham. And I know you will continue to do that with Graham. And thankfully, this is something that even though the responsibility of it is yours, you don't have to do it alone. You've got family. You've got a church family that loves you and will be there to support you, to encourage you, to equip you, and to reinforce the things you're teaching Graham through Sunday school and through other children's ministries and just through the lives of the people that he witnesses day in and day out. And so with all that being said, I want to give you a charge a very sacred and solemn charge before God and this church, since you have come to dedicate yourselves and your son, Andrew Graham Allen, to the Lord. In so doing, you are committing yourselves to the task of raising him in the name of Jesus Christ. You will receive help from this congregation, your family and others, but as his parents, you do have this very solemn responsibility. So I charge you to commit yourselves faithfully to this responsibility with wisdom, Patience, devotion, understanding, and love. Having so purposed in your hearts, do you in the presence of this church and the Lord God solemnly promise to strive in training your son 
in love toward God and in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said, the responsibility rests on them, but it's shared with us as well. And so I charge us as members of this congregation to dedicate ourselves to prayer, to create a Christian environment both in this church and in the larger community such that Graham will be raised to know, love, and one day follow Jesus as his Lord and Savior, to experience being spiritually adopted into the everlasting family of God. If you join me in accepting this responsibility, would you say, we will? Amen. Now, Blake and Maggie, I've got a certificate here that uh, the three of us have signed about today and this commitment that you have made and that the church has made as well. There is a handkerchief so that when he is ready to do what we've seen this morning, he can have that so that he can also be baptized. And then this wonderful rhyme storybook Bible for him to enjoy y'all reading to him now because he can't read or speak yet, which is why I was asking you to say hello to him, just making that clear. He is a, he is a rather remarkable young man already, though. And I want to pray with uh, all three of you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the gift of new life. That Graham is here, brings a little bit of light into this world. It makes it a better place. And Graham is here in this world with the hope that he will come to faith in Christ and spend eternity with his parents in the, in the world that is to come. So we pray your blessings upon him, upon Blake and Maggie, upon their family in this church. You would help us to do all we can to set his feet on the right path and to nurture him in faith toward God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Love you all. God bless you. Thank you so much. And thank you to these families for being here and for worshiping with us today. We are grateful to have you. Well, I have uh, started a sermon series last Sunday. I don't do this very often. And uh, we introduced it, and then I'm, I'm stepping away from it this week and not talking about spiritual gifts. I had put down two weeks for spiritual gifts, so, you know, we can, I'll just have to, you guys just bring a lunch and be ready to just, you know, hunker down next Sunday. But, um, but I, I'm going to talk about something that God has been laying on my heart over the past few days. Like, I'm sure every one of you, I was shocked and appalled by the events in our nation this week. Um, And I don't just mean the riots at the Capitol, although certainly that was shocking and appalling and and deeply distressing. Uh, As I watched that, shock gave way to sadness, which gave way to grave concern, which which really kind of started to give way to despair. Because that came on the heels of of uh, two elections that didn't go the way I wanted. And I don't think anybody here would be surprised to to hear me say that. I, I don't stand up here and talk about who I vote for or who you should vote for, but... I think everybody here knows that I vote my Christian values and I vote in what I believe to be in accordance with the Word of God. So uh, it shouldn't surprise you that that I was disappointed. It came on a day when uh, Joe Biden was named president-elect. And uh, to be honest, as I look at the events of this past week and then since then, the the continued division that's being driven by groups like... uh, Amazon and Apple and Google and Twitter, uh, just driving deeper division into our country and causing even more uh, unrest and distrust and frustration. It feels like my country is coming apart. It feels like it's being torn apart before my very eyes, and, and maybe you feel that way as well. But in the midst of all of this, I spent some time praying. I finally said I have to turn off the computer, I have to turn off the TV, I need to pick up the Word of God. 
I need to spend some time with my Lord because I'm just getting more worked up. I'm just getting more uh, upset. And God spoke to me. And he reminded me of something Wednesday. All of this happened on Wednesday for the most part. You know what else happened on Wednesday? It was Epiphany. It was the day in which we celebrate the coming of the wise man, the wise men, the magi, to worship a newborn king. And he wasn't just born king of the Jews. And the fact that these magi from the east, they weren't Jewish, they came to worship this king, speaks to the fact that Jesus isn't just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. He's the king of the universe. The cosmos is his court. There is no corner of creation that does not fall under his rule and his reign. And God reminded me that while I am a citizen of the United States and and I am beyond grateful to have been born where and when I have been born, I love my country. I love studying its history. I love the values that upon which this country was founded. I love the vast expanse of this nation and how beautifully it reflects God's wonders and the diversity of creation. I love the way Americans have fought for and preserved liberty, not just for ourselves, but for others. I love that. But God reminded me, my primary allegiance is not to the United States of America. Certainly not to its government, no matter who's in power. My primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. My allegiance is to the king of kings above all others. And everything that I pray for and hope for and dream for and work for as an American is because I belong to Jesus and I serve Him. And everything that I do to be a good citizen of America is first and foremost because I want to be a good citizen of the kingdom of God. And I want to bring glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It grieves me that I needed to be reminded of this. (laughs) But it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get discouraged. To get caught up in earthly affairs. Which, don't get me wrong, many of them are important. Many of them are not. (laughs) And Sometimes it's hard for us to tell the difference between the two when we're being shouted at and yelled at and talked to from all sides all the time. But we cannot even let the good concerns of our lives and the right concerns for our nation, we can't let them overshadow the eternal concerns of the kingdom of God, especially when it comes to the eternal destiny of the souls of men and women and boys and girls and to the glory of King Jesus. That should always be our first burden and concern. We are called to make disciples of Jesus. And if, we're, if we get more worked up and upset over who does or doesn't win elections than we do over who does and doesn't give their life to Jesus Christ, something's wrong in here. So I turn to God's Word. And I believe that He led me to the book of Micah. And I want to use Micah to help us identify the underlying problems that's facing our nation and to point us toward God's answer to it. And I want to suggest... What our King Jesus would have us to be and do as His kingdom people on mission in a turbulent time. Micah was a contemporary of Amos. If you remember, we spent time going through the book of Amos this past summer. And like Amos, Micah was a country boy. He was a farmer. He wasn't a city kid. He wasn't a highly trained or educated man. And if you remember, God called Amos to go to the northern kingdom of Israel to preach his message. Well, he called Micah to the southern kingdom of Judah 
to preach his message. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say we, we can't fall into the trap of thinking that America is some kind of inheritor of Israel's position as God's holy nation. We are not a new Israel or a replacement for Israel. And we can learn, a, but that being said, I think that we can learn a lot from Israel. As a nation that did belong to God, as a nation that did form, was formed by God and blessed by God and used by God, but became so corrupt and wicked that God brought punishing judgment upon them, allowing pagan nations to capture their land and take the people away as captives into exile. I do believe that America has received special blessing from God and has been used by God in many ways. We're not perfect by a long shot. But I do believe that God has been at work in and through our country. And so as we read these passages, I want us to watch for how descriptive this is for our own culture and country today. Micah begins by addressing the nation as a whole. He speaks against, next, the political and the religious leaders. We're going to look at all three of those. In chapter 1, I'm just going to summarize this. It highlights how God basically says, I've had it with you. I've had it with Israel. I've had it with Judah. I've warned you, don't make me come down there. Well, guess what? I'm coming down there. And I'm going to deal with you because you won't repent. You won't change your ways. And so he, he's going to come down and deal with his wayward children. And he's going to bring judgment and destruction upon them because they have so turned their backs on God. Well, then we come to Micah chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. In other words, they're laying up all night long, just dreaming up evil schemes. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow, a fellow man of his inheritance. So here we get a sense of the heart problem in Judah and Israel. It's at the root of their bad behavior. He says they're inventors of wickedness. They're oppressing each other for power and money. And I want you to notice how in chapter 1, basically what God says in chapter 1 is that they have abandoned their covenant with God. First, they turned their back on God, and then they turned to idols, basically breaking the first four commandments in chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, Micah points out that not only have they abandoned the covenant, they've abandoned the commandments. And that's what happens. When you break those first four commandments, when you abandon God as the only God on the throne of the world and of your life, you know what you're going to do next? You're going to start breaking the other six. Those six commandments about how we treat each other are predicated upon who God is in our lives. And I believe this perfectly sums up the problem that our country is facing today. The problem isn't who tens of millions of people did or didn't vote for. Guess what? Elections are lagging indicators of where a culture is. So the problem didn't happen no matter who you voted for. The problem, the solution, none of that depends on who sits in the White House. Riots, looting, political violence, the division and hatred we see online, racism, the distrust of institutions, the injustice, the double standards, all of these things are symptoms of deeper heart problems. And we get all worked up over the symptoms and nobody's talking about the problem. Like Israel, our nation, I believe, is abandoning our founding principles. The covenant of freedom, which itself is based on Judeo-Christian values upon the word of God. Psalm 11.3 came to my mind. When the foundations are being destroyed, 
what can the righteous do? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do as we watch the foundations of our country being destroyed, as we watch the symbols of our country being attacked? Do we just give up? Some people are. Do we just fight all the harder? Some people think so. Do we match tit for tat the extremity of those leading the charge against freedom and biblical values with our own extreme rhetoric and actions? Certainly, we're seeing a lot of that today, too. But Psalm 11 continues on. It doesn't stop there. It goes on to a word of hope. Psalm 11:4: The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. God is not blind to what is happening. God is on His throne. Make no mistake. He's not blind. Justice will be served. The truth will win out in the end. And our hope is that Jesus is the sovereign king on his throne and he will examine and judge everyone. And guess what? That's his job, not ours. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours and mine. Now, I can imagine that Micah, witnessing what God, hearing what God was saying through him, witnessing these visions and understanding what was going to happen, he must have wrestled with despair. As he saw the foundations being destroyed, but he put his hope in God. So what did God see when he fixed his eyes upon Judah and Israel? When he examined them, what did he see? Well, the rest of chapter 2 lays out God's specific claims. First of all, he talks about the people. The people were guilty of rejecting God's word. Look at verses 6 and 7. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? God's people didn't want to hear God's Word any longer. They didn't want to hear sermons warning them to change their ways or face the consequences. They were comfortable. They were comfortable in their sin. Ignorance is bliss. Preacher, don't talk about that stuff. Don't say those things. And the spiritual leaders were all too happy to oblige. They weren't preaching what they knew was the truth. They were more interested in telling people what they wanted to hear. And we'll see more about this in a minute. The second thing he accuses the people of is coveting and stealing. Look at verses 8 and 10. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up and go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. Basically, they're guilty of breaking the Eighth and the Tenth Commandments. Don't covet and don't steal. Because why work for what you need and want when you can just take it from someone else? But in so doing... Micah says they were depriving the next generation of God's blessing. They were defiling the land to the point that it was without remedy. Now here and earlier up, uh, up here in the verses we read a few minutes ago, Micah basically describes two ways in which people can be guilty of breaking the 8th and 10th commandments. And I believe we see both happening today. 
Some were gaining wealth on the backs of the poor and the powerless. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were driving them deeper into poverty. That, that, that gap, we hear about that gap growing between the, the haves and the have-nots. It, it, we're nowhere close to where it was in, in the day of Micah, that, that gulf that was there. But others were just as guilty of greed, wanting what belonged to the rich and the successful. And God is against both. He's against both of those forms of materialistic greed. Stealing and covetous can happen among poor and rich alike. And it's a sin no matter who is committing it. And we would do well to heed the warning about depriving the next generation of the blessings that you and I enjoy today. And we see a lot of that happening. Then he says that they were also lying and deceiving. In verse 11, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. It's kind of a joke right there, you know. Basically, they're making empty promises they can't keep. Again, we hear and see a lot of that today. And that's, that's breaking the ninth commandment. So he's accused of breaking the eighth, ninth, and the tenth commandments right there. Now, in chapter 3, God gets even more specific. He begins to call out the political and the religious leaders for the corrupt and wicked condition of, the gener- of this nation. He's basically saying, it's your fault. I'm holding you responsible as the leaders for the condition of my people. So he says the political leaders were guilty of, first of all, perverting justice. First, they were perverting justice by hating what was good and loving what was evil. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil? And then he accuses them of perverting justice by despising it and distorting what is right. Look down at verse 9. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. They're despising justice. They're twisting it. They're perverting it. And then he says they're perverting justice by taking bribes in the first part of verse 11. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Now, I don't have to tell you where we see these things happening today in our culture. I don't have the time to. And I I told the Lord I'm not going to get sidetracked this morning, and I'm not going to rant, okay? So I'm not going to do that stuff. But I will also in no way defend or make excuse for what we saw Wednesday, for any kind of rioting, looting, vandalism, assaulting either private businesses or federal buildings. But I can understand the anger and the frustration that so many people feel. I get that. Because Satan is sowing seeds of division and distrust in abundance today. And whether you're on the right or on the left, whether it's that you feel that, the, the, that our black men are being unfairly oppressed by law enforcement, or you're on the right and you think the conservative voices are being oppressed by big tech, I think there's truth to all of that. Because Satan is the author of chaos. And guess what? He doesn't discriminate. He wants to sow chaos. He wants to see injustice and oppression. He wants to destroy lives. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter whether there's a D or an R by somebody's name or who they vote for. It doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Satan wants to ruin your life, your witness, your reputation, your family. He wants you to be filled with chaos not the peace of God. 
Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We are seeing woe today, and people are not believing that there's justice because of this. Because of double standards. Because the goalposts keep getting moved. Every day on what's moral or not, what's right or wrong. Virtues are being turned inside out, upside down. Values are being twisted and perverted away from God's unchanging word. And we have woe in the land because people are calling evil good and good evil. They were perverting justice. Secondly, they were abusing their power. And they were doing it by devouring their own people for personal gain. Look back up at verse 2. He goes on to say, "...who tear the skin from my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot." It's getting pretty descriptive there in that little parable, isn't he? He's making a point. He's saying that the leaders of the people are devouring them. It's like they're eating them up for dinner. They're abusing their power, and they're also doing it, in in verse 10, he says, by resorting to violence and wickedness in order to maintain their power. He says in verse 10, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Again, I think we see the same things happening today. It seems like that so many of our leaders only care about people or causes when it benefits them personally or financially. When it's to their benefit, they will speak up for one thing and against another. But when the tables are turned, they do the exact opposite. I think that for too many people, they look at us and see that we're only worth the votes that we cast or the dollars that we spend. They abuse their power and they devour up the people they're supposed to be serving. Not, not everybody. Not every, I'm speaking in generalities here. Understand that. Not everybody is like that. But the third thing he accuses Israel's leaders of is embracing pride. Because as wicked and corrupt as they were, they still had the gall to cry out to the Lord as if they had done nothing wrong. Look at verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they had done. And then in verse 11, he says that they denied they were even guilty of anything worthy of God's judgment. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. We see the same hubris, pride, and arrogance today as leaders will advocate for the destruction of innocent life, deny the basic truth that God has made us male and female, devalue people made in God's image because of their ethnicity, education, or income level, and make a mockery of God's ordained institution of marriage, all while they claim to speak for God, quote Scripture when it suits their needs, and dare ask for God's blessing on it all. And God says, I will not listen. I will not hear your cries. I will turn my face from you. And I'm going to let foreign nations come in and plow you under, even to the destruction of the holy city of Jerusalem. The people were guilty. The political leaders were guilty. And the spiritual leaders were guilty. I'm not going to let the the, the group that I represent off the hook here. Spiritual leaders were guilty. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. If he does not, they prepare to wage war against him. 
And then look at verse 11 there in the middle of that verse. He kind of hits everybody in verse 11. Her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money. So what were the spiritual leaders guilty of? They were guilty of preaching for popularity. They cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. They were more interested in consulting polls and getting a feel for where the wind was blowing than consulting God in prayer. Whatever made the people happy, that's what they preached. Reminds me of what Paul warns us about in 2 Timothy 4. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. I could preach a whole sermon on that verse right there. Because it's so true. It's why we see so many people turning to the the health and wealth gospel, the feel-good gospel that doesn't require them to change or repent or sacrifice or serve. It's why people only want to hear what confirms what they already think. We call that confirmation bias. Whatever I already think and believe, that's what I want to hear. I don't want anybody to challenge what I believe, what I feel, and certainly I don't want you to challenge what I'm doing. Nobody wants their toes stepped on. Nobody wants to squirm in their seat listening to a preacher. And I get it. I understand where these men are coming from because, listen, y'all, it's hard to do what I'm doing right now. It's hard to stand up and proclaim the Word of God when the rest of the culture is going the other way. It's hard to tell people what they don't want to hear. It's not easy to go against the tide and say things that might get you labeled a bigot, a hater, intolerant. Cancel culture is real. And it's becoming a dragon that I'm afraid we won't be able to put back in its box. And I'm sure someday it'll come for me and for everyone who preaches the Word of God in its fullness. But I stand with Paul. In Galatians 1.10, he said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. They were preaching for popularity. And then they were also preaching for greed. And that's one motivation for many preachers when they water down the Word of God, when they steer clear of touchy topics, they're doing it because they're, they're worried. They're worried about losing the financial backing of their church. They're worried about losing their job. They're worried about not being able to provide for their families. And of course, there are others who preach to make a name for themselves, to try to get rich. But I've got to tell you, there's got to be an easier way to get rich than doing this. And I want to say that I'm thankful for a church that lets me stand here and do what I'm doing right now. That lets me preach the Word of God. Thank you. Now, I know all of this sounds bad. Sounds hopeless. But Micah doesn't end with words of judgment. He offers words of hope. Hope of redemption. Hope of renewal. Look at Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, in the midst of all of this accusation... I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them the Lord at their head. Now, our nation, I believe, is is about as divided today as it's ever been. But we're nothing like Israel. Israel had a full-blown civil war, and they split into two nations. 
Two nations that hated each other and distrusted each other and fought bloody battles against each other. Yet here God promises to unite them. To bring His sheep together into one pen. And He says no human leader can accomplish this. He says the Lord Himself will be at their head. He will rule over them and lead them. He will be the shepherd to tend to their needs. Now throughout Israel's history, they've been looking for this coming king who would be born of the tribe of Judah. Later on, they understood he would, be, he would come from the family of David. He would rule God's people with justice and extend the blessings God promised Abraham to all the world. He would be the one to heal their wounds. And he himself would be wounded, but he would crush the head of that old serpent who brought sin and ruin into God's good world. Well, David came and they thought maybe this is the one. Maybe he's the wounded victor. He wasn't. His sons and his grandsons were not this righteous king. Generation after generation, God's people descended further and further into sinful rebellion against God. Now, there were a few bright spots, kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, but even they were bitten by this serpent. So look at Micah 5, verses 2 and 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who was in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace king they were looking for had not yet been born but his origins are from of old from ancient times and when he comes he will be born in bethlehem the least the smallest of the tribe of judah and he will be the good shepherd strong in the majesty and strength of the lord god and because of his greatness his people can live in peace and security guess what king jesus has come and He is on His throne. And we, when we follow the leading of our Good Shepherd, we can live in security. We can rest in peace. We can be sustained by His great majesty and strength no matter what is happening around us. You know, when Jesus came the first time, He came in unexpected ways. He, and He came into a world and a culture that was just as corrupt and wicked and broken as Micah's and as ours today. You know, sin really hasn't changed since the Garden of Eden. Sin is sin. And we keep falling into the same destructive patterns. And when Jesus came, Jewish society was divided not into north and south. They were divided into four competing groups and philosophies. And I want to touch on these very briefly. The first is the zealots. They believed in taking up arms to fight for the Messiah. We see zealots today. The riots. The cancel culture. All that is the way of conflict, using the world's methods, not the kingdom of God, to accomplish good. Zealots believe the ends justify the means, and they see people as the enemy, whereas Paul told us we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Zealots see conflict and victory from worldly perspectives. They believe you win no matter the cost or the casualties. And there were zealots in Jesus' day. He called one of them to be his disciples one of his disciples. The second group is the Pharisees. 
They desired to purge themselves of undesirables and sinners. They believed that doctrinal and ritual purity were needed. It had to be restored if the Messiah was going to come. And too many churches and Christians today are like Pharisees. If you don't agree with me, not necessarily the Bible, if you don't agree with me, if you don't agree with what I think and the way I do things, you're not welcome. These people believe that Christianity is first and foremost a moral system. They believe it's about saying and doing the right things in the right way. Listen, Jesus' harshest words were reserved for Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were students of the Word of God. They knew the Scriptures. They were so close to understanding, but they were blind. They failed to see that they were just as sick and in need of the great physician's healing as the worst of sinners. And Jesus had His harshest words for them. The third group were the Sadducees. They wanted to appease the powers that be, namely Rome. They believed you you go along to get along. They put their emphasis on maintaining their religious traditions and rituals. They didn't worry about the riffraff. Who cares whether normal, everyday people are living according to the Word of God or not? We just need to go along to get along. If that means we change our morals and our doctrines to conform to the pattern of the world, that's fine so long as we can keep meeting and singing our songs and keeping our titles. They had a form of godliness. They could look and sound the part, but they denied the power thereof. And the fourth group were the Essenes, which basically were like sort of ancient Amish. They just withdrew from the culture. They just went out and they formed their own little conclave, and they just said, you know, the ship is sinking, abandon all hope, but we're going to get on this little lifeboat over here and at least save ourselves. I see all four of these groups today. There are people that act like zealots, people that act like Essenes. Let me just, let me just withdraw from everything, my, just me and my little family, and we're just going to be fine. There are people who are like the Sadducees. They sacrifice doctrinal integrity, and they just go along with whatever is culturally acceptable today and politically correct, just so they can keep doing their thing. And then you've got Pharisees, which are judgmental and critical, and if you don't look right and act right, then they're going to look down their nose at you. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus abandoned all four of these. He didn't belong to any of these camps. He came to offer a different way, a narrow way. And if we are truly following Jesus on His path, then we must bear the cross of self-denial and sacrificial love. It makes me think of Moses leading Israel through the parting of the Red Sea. You've got the right, you've got the left. You've got these people bickering and these people over here. But in the middle is Jesus leading His people through to the promised land. This world is not our home We are pilgrims passing through. And we have to discern and display the grace and the truth of Jesus walking in love while firmly holding out the word of truth. I know I'm going long today and I apologize for that. It's been a full service. But I want to share two images with us. How do we flesh this out? What does this mean for Jesus to be our King and for us to follow Him through the parting of the chaos of our world? He gives us two images in the Sermon on the Mount to help us walk this narrow path. The one is salt and the other is light. I've talked about this and I mention this every time we do a baptism. This is the image that's on the back of the t-shirt that everybody who's baptized gets this t-shirt. It says, be salt and light on the front of it. Being salt means that we are present in the culture. We're not salt in the shaker. We're salt outside the shaker. We have to be in the world but not of it, maintaining our distinctiveness from those around us so that we can preserve what is good 
Salt's a preservative. We need to, the world needs us to preserve what is good in it still. We also heal what is wounded. Salt's a healing agent. But what happens when you get salt in a wound? Does it feel good? No, it stings. That's what the world can't stand. It is, as we're trying to heal the woundedness and the brokenness, guess what? It's going to sting. We're going to point out that there's something wrong there. Being salt means that we bring the flavor of all of God's goodness to a world whose senses have been dulled by sin. It's like the whole world's gotten COVID and they can't taste or smell anymore. And we've got to bring the flavor and the aroma of Christ to this world. Being light means that we also boldly shine and reflect the image of Christ. Like the moon shines by reflecting the sun. It means we proclaim His Word without hesitation or apology. And that's what I'm committed to doing. And that means that we're going to be more like pilgrims in a strange land than we've ever felt. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount fleshes out what it means to be salt and light. It means that sometimes we're going to be hated and persecuted for standing on God's Word. And it means that when we are, we don't lash out, hit back, throw ugly words right back at them. We turn our cheek. We go the extra mile. We pray for them and love them anyway. It means that we watch our words because words can kill someone's spirit or reputation. The cancel culture mentality today is the antithesis of the way of Jesus Christ. It means that we don't needlessly turn to man-made systems to resolve our differences. It means we keep our vows and our promises even when it's hard. It means we put others before ourselves and give to those who can never repay because Jesus gave Himself to us and we never could deserve it and we can never pay it back. It means we turn our worry into worship and our fear into faith through an inner life of prayer and meditation on the Word of God. We trust that the God who created the cosmos and holds all things together can provide for our needs. It means we work on our own faults rather than just pointing out the faults of others. We really need this one today. Listen, there's always enough blame to go around. And I hope I've made it clear that I'm not standing up for any one side or just laying the blame on any one side. There is blame to go around to all of us. It is so easy to point to them and to those over there on that side as the problem, all the while denying we have problems of our own. We need to be just as quick to address the plank in our eye as we are the speck of dust in someone else's eye. Ultimately, it means that we bear the fruit of Christ-likeness. It means that we're loving and joyful and peaceful. It means that we're patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Especially when others are vengeful and spiteful and intolerant and judgmental and unfair. That doesn't give us an excuse to be like them. That's all the more reason when it's darker around us, we need to shine the light of Christ brightest. Don't give in. And if we do these things, and if we're walking in the way of Jesus, our one and true King, if we're building our lives on the sure foundation of His Word, which never changes and can never be destroyed, that's a foundation that cannot be destroyed. Then when the storms come, guess what? We're going to come out okay in the end. If Jesus is our King, it changes everything. It changes what we watch on TV, what we listen to and read, how we treat people. It changes our priorities and our spending, and yes, it even changes our politics. So as we deal with the people in our lives and online, as we navigate a year that's already proving to be just the second verse of 2020, as we, it's true, isn't it? 
as we find ourselves frustrated and tired of it all. And y'all, I am so frustrated and tired. Let's look to Jesus. Let's walk in His ways. Let's bear His fruit. Let's prayerfully trust Him and seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Let's join Him on His mission to make disciples who will join us in following Him. Let's pledge our allegiance first and foremost to Jesus as our King. Amen. Now this morning, you may not, Jesus may not be your King. This morning, you may be living in this dominion of darkness and sin. The Bible says we're all born as citizens of a world of darkness and sin. And our destiny is eternal death. But Jesus died on the cross so that He could be your King. So that He could help you to defect from that dominion of darkness and become a citizen of His kingdom of light. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you taken yourself off the throne of your life and put the crown on Jesus and said, I want you to do a better job with my life than I'm doing? I can't control my tongue, Jesus, but maybe you can. Amen? If you've not done that today, I invite you today to come and to say, David, I'm a sinner. I've been doing things my own way, and I know that I'm far from God, but I want to trust in Him. I want to experience His grace. I want to be transformed. I want Jesus to be my King. I'd love nothing more than to pray with you. I'd love nothing more than to help you to be able to step into that baptistry and proclaim that Jesus is your King. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Lord, as we've heard and seen today, we're a mess. We're broken. We're wounded. We break and we wound others. And even those who think we're the best of the best, compared to you, we're the worst of the worst. But regardless of that, you loved us enough to send your son to die on Calvary's cross so that we could be made right with you, so that we could be forgiven, so that you could take the wreck of our lives and make something beautiful out of it. So, Father, if there's anybody here or online or on the radio that needs to put their faith and trust in you, I pray they would do so today and not delay. That is far more important than anything else anyone could ever do. And, Father, I pray that as your people, you as our King, we would do a better job of humbly, faithfully following in your ways. Not getting distracted, as you said to Isaiah, to the left or to the right, but... Whisper in our ears, this is the way. Walk in it. Help us to walk in your way. Even as we work and serve, and yes, even as people get involved in politics, Lord, may we do it as servants of Christ and His kingdom, first and foremost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.